For our first reading this evening, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 57. Uh, Before I do so, I just wanted to point out that there are two words in this psalm, and uh, those of us who are reading, we always like to sort of skim through if there's any particularly difficult words. And this psalm has the word selah in it, S-E-L-A-H, which is a Hebrew word that is often not translated in our Bibles, simply because in English there isn't a direct translation. And if you look up your Bible dictionaries and concordances, you will find that the word actually means stop and listen. Or perhaps, as the Amplified Bible suggests, pause and think of that. So this evening, when we get to the word seller, I'm actually going to pause and I want you to just think on those words. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of the lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, 
and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's no lack of churches in Horsham, is there? If you look at the Church of England alone, there are half a dozen different Anglican churches designed to reflect different styles of worship. You have your charismatic, your evangelical, your high church, your liberal churchmanship, all of them represented within the Church of England. And then other denominations proliferate in a bewildering fashion. URC, Methodists, Catholics, Salvation Army, Christian Life Centre with a Pentecostal tradition, Kingdom Faith, King's Church, Go Church, the Redeemed Church of God, the Church at Holbrooks, the Quakers, the Unitarians, Three Brethren Assemblies, and to crown it all, no less than five churches that go by the name of Baptist. There's Brighton Road, there's Trafalgar Road, there's Life Baptist Church, Hope Baptist Chapel, and somewhat embarrassingly for us, there's Rehoboth Baptist Chapel right next door, which people often muddle up with us as well. It's a bit of an ecclesiastical selection box. You think there there should be something for everyone. But I suspect that Horsham has its fair share of Christians who can't quite find a church that meets all their criteria and so kind of go nowhere or move from church to church. It's a bit like the, the supermarket mentality. You kind of want the worship from here and the preaching from there and the fellowship from somewhere else. And because no one church has all the ingredients, none of them quite ticks every single box of people and so none of them quite do a good enough job. And what does the Lord make of all this, we might wonder? If variety is the spice of life, then he is delighted. And it's certainly the case that there is no single church, let alone any one denomination, that can single-handedly do justice to adequately giving a rounded picture of what God is like. We should be glad that so many churches enable us to combine together to give a panoramic view of God to the world. If it was just left to Brighton Road Baptist Church, we would have just a rather fuzzy Polaroid, and we would miss out on so much of the reality of what God is like. And that's fine, so long as with all the other churches, we cooperate and work together. And thankfully that does happen here in Horsham, by and large, for the most part extremely well with only one or two glitches. Yet the way in which so many churches have joined together, say, to to run the winter night shelter, is evidence of our cooperation and of our fellowship and our work together for the kingdom. And to that can be added the effective witness of the centre, there's the debt advice service, there's Horsham Matters, to name just a few of the things that Horsham and churches together support and cooperate on. The rich diversity among different churches doesn't mean we can't be united. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Where it all starts to go pear-shaped is when churches start to think they have a monopoly on getting it right. Other Other churches worship God their way, we worship God in his. 
Now, of course, every church thinks that we do it right. But we are definitely called to work, walk in fellowship with other churches who do it differently. Because by and large, we have far more in common that we share than things do divide us. Though one or two people have queried uh, the prayer diary entry today, which for some reason includes a reference to, to Mary, our mother. I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but it's broadening our Catholic, we're fellowship with the Catholic churches today. And some of you might have queried the wisdom of including the Unitarians in my list of Horsham churches, but they grew out of Baptist churches a while ago. But the key difference between us and them is that they don't believe Jesus is God in any way at all whereas all the other churches are Trinitarian, and we do. And the Unitarians see that as an expression of their freedom to think whatever they feel like thinking, whereas from where I stand, the New Testament is pretty clear, actually, that Jesus is God, and that is a clear difference between them. And they've kind of distanced themselves from the mainstream churches and saying, we don't believe that, and I would, you know, have problems, actually, uh, with them over that particular issue. But nevertheless, a friend of mine whose uh, father is a Unitarian minister says, ah, have you counted how many hymns there are that we sing that were written by Unitarians? Actually, it's quite a disconcertingly large number, apparently. Having said that, where there are clear differences, we should be clear what there are. But it's not our job to go around looking to try and establish clear blue water between us and everybody else. I remember being very grieved once, listening to a lecture from someone standing up and saying, well, all these churches are very well, but if you look closely enough, and if you, pick it up, if you pick it apart long enough, you will see that they are unorthodox in this respect. And it's that kind of nitpicking that evangelicals have been particularly good at over the years that grieves me immensely. I mean, the church is by its nature. You can divide a church in half and then a quarter and an eighth and a sixteenth, and what you are left with is still the church. But so often churches are grown by kind of division, and that's not been a good witness. We are to seek unity and cooperation rather than separation. Because if, if we put our minds to it, if we kind of made our orthodox list of things we had to believe long enough then we ourselves in this congregation tonight would split into goodness knows how many different factions because we don't agree about this or that aspect of creation or scripture or worship. You know, the potential for division is huge. That doesn't mean to say we have to be all wishy-washy and fuzzy about what we believe. We are to be robust in knowing what we believe and why we believe it and why we disagree with them over there but that still means that we are prepared to accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we disagree with them over there about a whole host of different issues. Paul addresses his letter to the Christians in Corinth, who are an extremely troublesome lot and not a bit like Brighton Road, I have to say. Graham said we could have a couple of readings tonight, and I looked at them and thought, well, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 17, that looks good. In actual fact, tonight marks a, a series of sermons through 1 Corinthians at a fairly rapid pace. I hope to finish it by Easter if we can, but I thought it would be good just to kind of squeeze in a series on 1 Corinthians between now and Easter. He addresses them as those who are sanctified in Christ, which is a complicated way of saying they've been made holy. He still sees them as saints, despite their frequently unsaintly behaviour. 
And then he elaborates this by saying, you've been called to be holy, called to be saints, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an unusual greeting at the start of Paul's letters. He is writing to a specific church, yet he seems to want to make the point that there is nothing special about them in one sense. What makes them the church of God is that they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as do all the other churches in every other place. Christ is as much Lord of the different denominations and churches in Horsham as he is of us. There is no room for superiority. There is no room for exclusivism. What counts is calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. It is that appeal to him as your saviour and your Lord that rescues you and makes you a member of God's family. You may not pass an examination on the finer points of theology, But if you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be your saviour, then he saves you. And we are called to accept and welcome everyone in every other church who gives assent to the earliest and simplest statement of Christian doctrine, Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. Further down in verse 8, Paul talks about God calling people into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't like the NIV translation there all that much. It would be better to talk about God calling them into the fellowship of his Son rather than fellowship with his Son. What does it mean, calling people into the fellowship of his Son? It might mean uh, that God has called the Corinthian church to be a church in addition to a whole host of other churches that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is perfectly possible. But equally, some people want to push it slightly further and talk about the fellowship of his son as if we are all kind of shareholders in Christ, as if we are all partakers in Christ, as if we are all members of the wider body of Christ. We are incorporated into the church with a capital C. Every congregation of God's people that is indwelt by Christ through the Spirit. And that may be closer to Paul's meaning because he carries on by having a go at them about the divisions and arguments that were tearing the fellowship apart. Some were saying, well, well I'm, I'm following Paul. He, he's the man for me. He founded the church in the first place. He's the one who really demands our loyalty and allegiance. And others were saying, well, I prefer Apollos, actually. He's such a gifted speaker. Paul is lousy when he stands up to preach. He stumbles over his words. Look at him, he's such an ugly fellow. You really can't give him a lot of time. But Apollos, he's so gifted and, and fluent. He, he, can, well, he makes the word of God come to life. He really is such an eloquent speaker, and that is such a profound gift of God he's got. Apollos is the man for me. And there are others who say, well, Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter was one of the twelve. He knew Jesus personally. He was in charge of the twelve apostles. You can't get more important or significant than Peter. And therefore, because there's a connection between Peter and the church in Corinth, we're going to nail our colours to the mast and say, Peter is the man that we're going to follow. And there were others who said, oh, plague on all your houses. We're not following any human leader. We're, we're for Christ. And the others can get, just get stuffed. Christ is the only one we're going to follow. And it was all just starting to get a little bit ugly. Now, Paul was appalled by this, as Apollos and Peter would have been. It's not that there was rivalry or friction, particularly by Paul, Apollos and Peter, but ambitious local leaders in the town were looking to recruit followers to their own particular small group within the wider congregation by declaring themselves to be loyal followers of these big names. It's as if the home groups in Horsham weren't kind of saying, well, go to whom you like. They were saying, no, you must come to us. 
Because we're, we're the orthodox ones, and we've got so-and-so as our home group leader, and we're following this particular brand of teaching, and we serve much better coffee, and the fellowship here is so much stronger, and the prayer life is here. You, you need to belong to our home group, because ours is the only one that's getting it right. And if you go to them, then, then really you haven't, you haven't really made the grades. And that was the kind of thing that was going on in Corinth, and Paul would have none of it. What do you think you're doing, he says? Is Christ divided? That question suggests he did see the Corinthians in some sense as having a share in Christ, so that when they all turned on each other and went off in their different factions, it was as if they were kind of tearing Christ apart. Was Paul crucified for you, he asks? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? It's not about me. It's not about Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Tim Carter. It is about Christ. He's the one who gave his life for us. It's his name that we are baptised into. It's him you belong to, not this or that particular church leader or group. You weren't baptised into the name of Paul, he says. You were baptised into the name of Christ. He says, I'm glad I only baptised a handful of you, because then you can't say that you were baptised into my name. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. That's one in the eye for baptism a bit, because we like to say baptism is quite important. Forget baptism, he says. It doesn't matter. Christ didn't send me to baptise. He sent me to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Downplays the importance of baptism a little bit too much for our liking as Baptist churches. But actually that verse reinforces my own view that baptism has to be about Christian conversion and commitment, not about denominational allegiance. If you come to Brighton Road as a practising Christian from a different denomination and you've already given public testimony to your faith by being confirmed or whatever, there is no need for you to get baptised by full immersion just because you've started coming to the Baptist church and you've realised that actually we do it the right way here. No! Not a bit of that. Baptism is about your own personal commitment to and faith in Christ as Lord and Saviour. That's what it's about, saying I've died with Christ, I've risen again with Christ, I'm living for Christ. It doesn't matter what denomination you do that in. And so sometimes we do get people coming and say, I really feel that that God is calling me to get baptised. And my response is, if you've been christened and confirmed, you really don't need to. Because that is a valid expression of your faith. But sometimes they say, well, I know, but I still feel that God is calling me to make this commitment. So, okay, fair enough. But when we baptise people here, it's in my heart for it to be, for them, an expression of new Christian commitment. Not, oh, I'm a Baptist now, I used to be Anglican, but now I've just jumped ship. And this is a different expression of my Christian faith. No, baptism is about a new expression of Christian faith. Not about joining this or that particular church. Why do people go to different churches? What's kind of on their list of things that they like to see? The preacher, perhaps. The style of worship. Kind of music that there is. What kind of fellowship is like? Whether they're welcomed when they first go? Are there people my own age here? Or are there, are there kind of children here that my own children can relate to? Does the, the, the teaching appear to be sound enough? Are the chairs comfortable enough? Is the coffee nice enough? All of these different things, kind of, you know, these are things, the things you weigh up when you go to church. And, and are there enough people there, actually? Or do we really feel that there's so few people here we might end up doing rather a lot 
and so we'll go somewhere else where we can just kind of blend in and be a little bit anonymous. Most people, when they join a church, don't say, so what do you believe then? What is it about Baptist churches? Where are you actually coming from? I was talking to a couple uh, the other day about a funeral, and they said, I've always been confused about Baptists. They haven't got a clue what Baptists are about. And Baptists are a little bit anonymous, really. No one quite knows what to make of us. So here for your benefit, try not to yawn too much, is what Baptist Union churches are all about. Three declarations of principle. Number one, this is the important one. Our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And each church has liberty, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to interpret and administer his laws. There's a lot there in quite a a clunky sentence. But it's quite clear that, you know, we are orthodox in terms of saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. We're also saying that he is our sole and absolute authority. Nobody else has the right to tell us what to do. There is no bishop over a Baptist church saying, this is how you must live your life as a church. They they devise this kind of thing because in the Baptist tradition there's a strong view that the king can't tell us what to do. And certainly the Anglicans can't tell us how we need to worship. We are going to worship God as we feel led, because Christ is the only authority that we acknowledge. It also has something to do with our interpretation of Scripture, because he is the key to Scriptures. The Scriptures are authoritative for us because, in as much as, they they speak of Christ. Christ is the centre, and we regard the Bible as authoritative because we regard Christ as being the the centre of Scripture. And there's stuff there about congregational government and church meetings as well. You know, the unchanging revelation of Christ in the Scriptures is is the core of what we have. How we work that out in practice in terms of an ever-changing world and society and culture is down for us to decide and argue about and discuss and pray about and seek God's guidance for in church meetings. So Christ revealed in the Scriptures is our given. How that works out in practice in Horsham in 2013 in an unknown future, is something we have to work out together as we together acknowledge the sovereignty of Christ over our fellowship and try and figure out what it means for us to live together and do mission together in this particular town at this particular time, given the authority of Christ in the Scriptures. That's what a Baptist church is all about. And it's deliberately kind of quite open in terms of saying churches have the freedom to work out what it means to interpret and administer his his laws, because Baptist churches are quite good on the freedom of conscience. We're not going to make you nail up to 39 articles or a whole list of things that you have to believe before we will accept you. The lordship of Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the key. Everything else comes out of that. So there is room for difference and diversity and acceptance of varied views within a Baptist church. And that's a good thing. And it's as as it should be. Where we get a bit particular is in number two. Christian baptism is the immersion in water into, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost of those who have professed repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day. That's the earliest summary of the Gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. If you're going to get baptised properly, it's in his name, by immersion, in water, as an expression of your own personal Christian faith. And that's where we kind of separate ourselves from lots of the other denominations who baptise babies when they're too young to know what they're doing. For us, baptism is about you believe, you repent, 
you trust, you're baptised, it's personal to you. That's the kind of distinguishing feature of Baptist churches historically. And number three, and this is what makes us evangelical, it is the duty of every disciple to bear personal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and so to take part in the evangelization of the world. Did you know that? If you come here, it is your duty to bear personal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live for him, to be open about sharing your faith about him, uh, to, to, to seek to bring other people into the fellowship of Christ. That marks us out clearly as an evangelical church where we say you opt in to being a Christian. You opt in to belonging to the church. You opt in to following Christ as your saviour and Lord. Very briefly, how do we differ from those very nice people next door? They come from what is known as the strict and particular Baptist tradition. They believe in strict communion and particular redemption, or they did That's the origin of the difference between the churches. We are kind of general Baptists where not anything goes, but that's more the ethos. They're strict Baptists where not very much goes, and that's more their ethos. To celebrate communion there, you need to have been baptised and been a church member. Whereas here we invite anybody to come and share in the bread and the wine. And there are theological differences underpinning that difference. Particular redemption means they believe that Christ died only for the elect. Whereas we believe that Christ died for everybody. And it's down to people to decide whether or not they want to follow him. Which, and it's for that reason that we are more prepared, actually, to invite everybody to take part in sharing the bread and the wine. And we are going to do that now. We are going to express something about Baptist identity. As I say, we are going to remember Jesus by breaking bread and pouring out wine. And anybody is welcome to come and share at this table because Jesus died for you. And you might not quite understand how it works. You might not be very sure about it. But if you want to recognise that Jesus is your Lord and your Saviour, to rely on him to take away your sin, to rely on him to give you eternal life, to rely on him to bring you to God, then however weak or uncertain your faith might be, he welcomes you and you are able at his invitation to share in this bread and wine. If Jesus really is not someone you want to be part of your life, then let them go by because this is a significant meal. The, bo- the bread represents the body of Christ broken. The wine represents his blood shed. But when we break the bread and drink the wine, we're saying, Jesus, I believe you did this for me, and I welcome you as my saviour, and I acknowledge you as my Lord. The other day I quoted, uh, I think it was in the morning, from a very enjoyable book, controversial book, unapologetic, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Francis Spufford has this to say about communion. This is what the church is for. Forget about saints, popes, bishops, monks, nuns, processions, statues, music, art, architecture, vicarage tea parties, telethons, snake handling, speaking in tongues, special hats. All that stuff can be functional in its time and its place, can do things sometimes to inch forward the work of love, but it's all secondary. It's all flummery. It's all essentially decorative compared to this. We eat the bread, we drink the wine, we feel ourselves forgiven and feeling that we turn from the table to try to love the world and ourselves and each other. Boils down to that. The body of Christ was given for you, the blood of Christ was shed for you. Come, eat and drink and receive Christ as Lord and Saviour.
Here is bread. Let's sing together number 762.